Hey, FDS listeners. Are you looking for a new true crime podcast to binge? Introducing Forensic Tales. Hosted by me, Courtney Fretwell, Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast with a forensic science twist. Each episode features real, bone-chilling stories to satisfy your inner forensic science and true crime itch. From fingerprinting to criminal profiling, we've got every investigative angle covered. Forensic Tales covers cases including well-known serial killers to cases you've probably never heard of. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Forensic Tales is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. That's Forensic Tales Podcast, a podcast that reminds us that not all stories have happy endings. Hey, queens, are you ready to level up? Then join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy, where you can find weekly bonus content and FDS commentary on all the latest pop culture, relationship, and dating news. If you just want to listen to the extra bonus content, we have the Lurker Mode tier on our Patreon. If you want merchandise, access to the private FDS Patreon Discord, which also includes a monthly book club with FDS and feminist-themed books, as well as FDS merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, and the opportunity to discuss topics with the FDS Podcast Queens live as well as submit stories for our Rose Discrope Queen and Gnosis discussions on the podcast itself. So if you'd like access to all this and more, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. What's up, queens? Welcome to the female dating strategy podcast, the meanest female only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. I'm Lilith. And today we have a very popular radical feminist. She rose to prominence on Twitter and wrote a very, quote, controversial book called Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. She's a chartered psychologist and founder of victimfocus.org.uk, an organization that seeks to eradicate victim blaming and move large systems towards more informed and anti-oppressive ways of working with victimized people. Dr. Jessica Taylor. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to do this. Honestly, I've been looking forward to this for ages. So have we. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for ages, so I'm so glad that you feel the same way. Yeah, I do. You're a highly, highly requested guest. I find myself like always just liking and retweeting you like out of habit, right? Like, <laughs> I see a Jess Taylor tweet, I like, I retweet or quote tweet. <laughs> Automatic. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. Maybe I can figure out what your handle is and then I'm like, oh, it's you. <laughs> the first time you liked one of my t- tweets, I was like, oh my gosh, you noticed me. <laughs> That's probably because you tweet awesome shit. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but yeah, so so we know who you are, and a lot of our listeners probably know who you are. But for people who you know might be tuning in for the first time, do you want to tell us a bit about your background, who you are, what you do, and you know how you got into this uh, whole profession? Mm. Okay. Um, where do you even start with that? That's massive. Um, it's a big question. I know. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like being like, hi, I'm Jess, I'm 31. (laughs) What I was really interested in is how you had a sort of non-traditional start to your academic career. So I I was really curious to know more about that and how how you how that started yeah so you're absolutely right about that um I didn't finish high school um because I had way too much going on in my life I'd been being um 
sexually exploited and trafficked and abused between 11 and 18. So even though I was like a straight A student, I just didn't have the brain power really for school. Like I couldn't be arsed with the bureaucracy and, and I didn't understand rules for the sake of rules. Like I was dealing with trying to stay alive. So if I went to school and they were like, you know, your tie's too short. I'd be like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> like, I didn't... I have bigger problems than this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, shut up, man. I'm coming down from drugs. Fuck off. <laughs> like, so I had, to, I had too much going on. So I got in a lot of trouble at school, mainly just through, I guess, yeah, like not wanting to get involved in, you know, rules and arguments and things like that. So, um, I still tried really hard because I really, really loved learning, but I just didn't fit in. I was too much of a problem for them. So I um, I also basically was convinced to run away from home and go and move in with like an, this adult guy when I was um, 15 years old. So I actually left school and left the area I was living in and went and lived with this man. And it meant that, you know, I didn't finish high school. So that means that I, I couldn't get into a university in a traditional way or anything like that. I got pregnant uh, when I was 16 and then I was beaten up and I had a miscarriage and then I got pregnant again almost straight away. And then I had a baby when I was 17, just just 17. And, um, you know, you get thrust into that. And I was just sort of <laughs> like 17 years old with a baby, like, shit, <laughs> like, what do I do now? And I pretty much I guess decided that I had to like fend for myself and figure out how to like protect this little baby and how, what was I going to do you know I talk about this a lot with my partner but abortion just like wasn't even suggested to me it, like wasn't an option nobody was like do you think maybe you want a termination like I never had that conversation with anybody I can honestly say never crossed my mind once and that's not because I was like some maternal I don't know like Madonna type it was like it was just that I, I don't know. Like, I never even considered that that was an option. So I, you know, had a baby and I was like, right, what do I do now? And I started like working part time and trying to like protect myself and stuff. And then by the time um, the baby was five months old, I ran away from abuse and I ran away from the perpetrators and about 50 miles away, didn't tell anybody where I went and like tried to sort of protect myself and start again. And, and then I met another, da uh, another guy um, who was abusive, but like, I guess guess because he wasn't like literally beating the fuck out of me every day or like raping me or whatever I used I thought it was like better and that it was like loads safer and so I thought I was okay and then I got pregnant again really quick again not planned and then all of a sudden I was like 19 with two kids and I was like oh my god like I've, I don't know what I'm gonna do and I had a stroke whilst I was pregnant with the second one when I was 19 and I then which is why I wear glasses um and then I so I had a stroke and then I went into premature labor at 29 weeks pregnant and then I was in hospital for five weeks with like like myself and, and the, the second baby and um and yeah and then like I got home and I had this like tiny little premature baby and I had like a two-year-old I was like what have I done and I remember just being in the middle of the night and trying to feed this tiny little premature baby and thinking oh my god like what are you going to do with your life like you've you've now got a support two children what are you going to do that's basically where my career started I was like sat in the middle of the night thinking right what are you going to do now and I thought well you know maybe I could start by volunteering somewhere or maybe I could like build a career somehow I had no idea how I was going to do any of that I was actually 
I can't remember, maybe it was around that time that I was out of the wheelchair by then because I was in a wheelchair for a little bit after the stroke and then I was and then I was on crutches for like six months, which was obviously difficult with like two two tiny children. It must have been just after that, maybe, because I don't remember going to the interviews on crutches, so I must have been better by then. So I remember going to this interview and them saying, um, well, you can volunteer, but like we don't really have any opportunities. And uh, they said, we'll ring you if we're interested. And then about a week later, I got a phone call saying, look, there's this role working in a court with women who've been subjected to domestic violence. And they're like, I don't don't know if you want to do that. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, I could probably do that. I was like, you know, just want to help really. And I remember naively at 19 thinking, oh, I'll be great at that because of everything I've lived through, you know, (laughs) like I'll I'll know everything there is to know about that. And uh, which is wrong. Like I I learned very quickly that that was bollocks and that, you you know, just because you've lived through something doesn't make you the expert on it. Um, And that just because you know your experience as a woman doesn't mean that you know every woman's experience. Uh, But that's definitely what I thought at 19 years old. So I went and did that. And then around that time, there were adverts on the TV saying that, you know, you could go to the open university if like no other unis had let you in because like you've got no qualifications or you've, you know, you're older and and you've not had that traditional route. And I remember thinking like, maybe I could do that. So um, I went on the internet and had a look at the website and um, I sort of like submitted an application saying that I wanted to do a degree in psychology. and, And I decided around that time that maybe I wanted to be a psychologist and maybe I would see whether I was good enough. And I remember being so nervous when I submitted the application, thinking, oh my God, they're just going to like email me back, being like, no, fuck off. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're only, yeah, we were only joking on the TV advert. It's not you, love. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, no, um, it was, yeah, they, I got an email back saying that I'd been accepted, um, which uh, now on reflection makes a lot of sense considering they re- they accept everybody. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> so, yeah, I went and, went and did a degree uh, with the Open University, which is still an accredited degree and everything, Like, but you do it part-time and you do it you know, around kids and work and stuff. And the degree really gave me the confidence that I was actually intelligent enough to do that. And I remembered sort of like how much skill I, I had still. And I thought, oh, I found this really easy. And then uh, from that, I, uh, I was volunteering in the courts on a Friday, supporting women who'd been subjected to domestic violence. I was building my experience. I was going on lots of training courses and figuring out, you know, what I was good at and what I wasn't. So it took me four and a five, nearly five years to get my degree part-time, which I thought wasn't too bad considering I was working and and I had the kids. And within that five years, I was promoted several times um, and sort of went into more and more senior positions. Nice. Yeah. In the criminal justice system and stuff, which went down like a lead fucking balloon because like, I was like, what 21 and I was an area manager in the criminal justice system (laughs) so which didn't go down very well I had staff members that I was managing that were like two or three times my age and they hated me wow yeah it was really difficult to deal with like one time I remember they just came into my office and they put all of my paperwork through a shredder for a laugh and then sprinkled it all over my desk as like a way of trying to get me to resign what (laughs) excuse (laughs) me yeah pardon me (laughs) yeah I know yeah, I know. I remember. I guess the upside of our um, our very fire-happy culture in America is that that would definitely get you fired in most offices yeah, here in the U.S. Yeah, the one upside. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, damn. First of all, when I read your story the, for the first time, hearing how rapidly promoted you got, I was like, queen, <laughs> nice. I don't really know how that happened other than the fact that I have a, I have a life policy, which is... Um, 
throw yourself in the deep end and see if you can swim afterwards. And um, I've I've sort of done that ever since I was a teenager, basically. And which is that whenever I saw a promotion go in, I used to think I'll apply for that, even if I wasn't good enough for it. Basically, I think like a mediocre man, which is you know just have a go. Yeah, no, that's the key to success. <laughs> it is, it is. So I used to just be like, I'll oh, have a go, see if it works, and if it does, it does. So that's what I used to do. So these promotions kept coming up and I used to think, well, I'll have a go because, you know, why not? And then I kept getting them. Yeah. By the time I was like 23 or 24, I was in senior management in the vulnerable intimidated witness programs in the criminal justice system. So I specialized in homicide, trafficking, sexual and domestic violence. And the majority of all of those victims are women and girls. So like basically I worked with women and girls all day, every day. And, um, and then I went and worked in a rape center, took over management of a rape center, where I had like 30 or 40 therapists uh, we provided counseling and um, focus groups and support groups for women and girls who've been raped and abused and I was probably about like 24 or 25 then and then I again decided to just like cheekily apply for a PhD with no master's degree because I thought I can talk my way into that because I can talk my way into anything frankly so I thought I'll I'll have a go and see whether that works I applied to like a top university thinking you know what are the chances really but I'll have a go so I applied to a top university for a PhD in forensic psychology when I was I was probably I must have been 24 because I started when I was 25 and I managed to convince them to take me on with no master's degree so I went from bachelor's to PhD uh, and I argued that because of my work experience I shouldn't be expected to do a master's so I managed to get on and then I I did the PhD really quite quickly because again still bringing up the kids so technically I did the PhD part-time but I kind of like did it as fast and as effectively as I could so it was supposed I think like a full-time PhD takes like uh three and a bit years but a part-time one can take six to ten years and I did it in um three years and three months to try and get it out of the way so that that would have taken me to like 28 or something like that and that's when I that's when I got my PhD and became a chartered psychologist and um yeah and then like uh, during the PhD I basically quit my jobs because I went into senior management in um, human trafficking and sexual exploitation of women and girls and I quit my job and decided to set up victim focus when I was um, 20 six twenty seven and I just that was because I noticed how oppressive and misogynistic and victim blaming those systems and those services were that I was working in and I thought there's got to be a better fucking way of doing this and so I thought maybe I could have a go again <laughs> maybe I could have a go and make it better and um and yeah we've just grown from there really so we're a we're a team of seventeen women at the moment and um we're just gone out to recruitment I'm recruiting another ten next month. That's amazing. And then the the whole thing with the books is just another level of wild, just the wild ride of life, basically. Oh, yeah, because Ro wanted to ask about that. Yeah, I wanted to ask because I read a tweet thread you did a while ago where you were talking about how your haters basically were your motivators and the people that put you on the map as far as a radical feminist author, which I thought was very um, similar to female dating strategies, right? So I thought you could talk a little bit to that. About how your haters made you famous, basically. Yeah, there's loads of there's. To be honest with you, right? I would I would take great pleasure in sitting here and shouting them all out and saying thank you because they crack me up. <laughs> I actually find it really really funny that they must watch me through gritted teeth. I find that dead funny. It it proper tickles me every day. It's just fucking really funny. But um, there's been several attempts to properly destroy me that have backfired on every single person that's done them so far, and it's 
generally like men's rights activists or anti-feminist sort of organisations. Sometimes like alt-right groups have done it. I've had, I don't know, I've had academics do it, just academics that have like, shut her up, shut her up, she's too mouthy. I've had that sort of thing as well. But I've had a couple of times where it was fairly minor that meant that I was... I think I was resilient enough. I hate that word actually, but I guess I endured because I don't like resilience. I prefer endurance. Like I was able to endure what happened around the book, which is how the book blew up was that, you know, I wrote why women are blamed for everything thinking I was going to sell fucking 50 copies or something. And, you know, I would have been dead proud of that. Honestly, I would. And I only ordered fucking 50 or something anyway, uh, self-published it and like got a printer to print some out for me. And I was dead proud of it. And, um, it's a good book. I've read it. I liked it a lot yeah i'm glad it blew up thank you um it's actually a bit of a like i saw somebody online trashing it being like this is like a, a phd thesis hybrid book and i was like yeah no shit well yeah that's what what it is it literally says that it's like oh well done very observant <laughs> um, so yeah it was um it just yeah when uh, what happened it was the the press had ran a story basically that I'd self-published this book and I somehow my my picture and my all my contact details got shared on some like forum of like MRA's alt-right group I, I don't know exactly where it went but I just woke up one day to thousands and thousands of messages and comments and emails and just comments on every picture of me on my social media on my Facebook on my Twitter on my Instagram every single platform platform was getting raided and it was just overwhelming i'd never had any i have had one like instance of it being that bad but not as intense as that so it was like probably i think it was like ten thousand, just under 10 or just over ten thousand rape and death threats and like really really effect, like abusive comments in about the space of five days over a book yeah yeah and <laughs> you know the best bit about that it wasn't even over the book it was over a picture of me holding the book um <laughs> and that's all it was that's all that had caused it um so it was really, really bad. Like some of it was really, really bad. It was so violent. Some of the death threats and the rape threats I got was so graphic. And then my computer got hacked. So uh, on the fifth day, my IT all got hacked and some dude took over my computer to like intimidate me and stuff. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. It was pretty scary. The police took all my IT and was like investigating it for ages. But, um, anyway, so like, what had happened was then I had tweeted about what was happening and then the mainstream press picked up and it was like, you know, author of new feminist book uh, gets like 10,000 rape and death threats in a week or whatever. And then because of that and because it went massive, the book that I had self-published sold 10,000 copies in six weeks. Queen! Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, I, I didn't realize that was a lot because I thought that people sold millions of books. That's not, by the way, that's not true. Like I, I thought that that's what happened when people were successful authors. I thought they sold like millions of copies, but they don't. And um, so 10,000 is actually like very, very high for, for books, especially for nonfiction book sales. Especially for your first book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially considering that they all got fucking delivered to my living room. <laughs> really? Seriously? <laughs> yeah because I didn't have like I hadn't like thought it through didn't have a warehouse or anything yeah yeah no I didn't have yeah exactly I didn't have any facilities I didn't have an agent I didn't have a publisher I didn't have a distributor so I ordered the books to try and keep up with the orders that were coming through my website and I just didn't think it through I did not I did not mentally sort of picture what 10,000 books looks like but by it's a lot it's a lot of books um yeah <laughs> so they turned up on the driveway 
And this man in this huge lorry pulled up on my street and he said to me, is this the right address? And I was like, yeah. And he said, I usually deliver these to warehouses. And I was like, oh. And then he said, you realise they're on crates? And I was like, um, no. And then he got a little, like, forklift truck out and started, like, <laughs> getting them off the lorry and just putting them on my drive. And I was like, oh, shit. And I've got pictures of this. I'll send you some pictures of me standing on the drive with crates and crates, like, higher than me of books. What did I get myself into? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, shit. And then me and Jamie and her mom then had to take them all into the house box by box by box and it was like raining and we were like shit get them in like the rain was coming down so yeah so we we had to take them in the house and then once we'd filled up the whole dining room the whole living room and the hallway and the stairs um then we just stood in the house looking at them like oh my god now we have to pack them and ship them because we like we had no help so and it was lockdown we were in lockdown when this happened it was april 2020 um so this is recent this was like two years ago yeah this is yeah uh, and then yeah so we were like trying to ship all these books right also i had made a very stupid decision of telling everybody that if they ordered the book i'd sign them oh no so, <laughs> so i had to sign ten thousand books and um I'm glad you follow through on your promises. Yeah, I absolutely do. But also I did get to the point where I was like delirious filling them out. So I can honestly say that if anybody out there has got a first edition of those first 10,000 that I signed, loads of them have got rude messages in and jokes because I got bored. So I started, instead of signing them, I started (laughs) writing funny shit in them instead. (laughs) Um, That's a collector's item at that point, really. One day it might be. Can you imagine? (laughs) Um, putting it in a museum or something yeah (laughs) but yeah so then like loads of celebrities started reading a book right probably because they'd seen it in the press and I started getting like phone calls and like emails dms on twitter from like really really famous people I was like I thought I was being trolled at first and then I realized it was real over a period of days and I spoke to some incredible people that like I literally was like just like my jaw open the whole time and um yeah it just like continued to get big and then like um JK Rowling contacted me and offered me some help and she was like you're obviously overwhelmed and you've and like you've sold 10,000 books and she was like where is your agent I was like I don't have a fucking agent I don't know what an agent (laughs) is um and she was like well what about your publicist I was like I don't know what a publicist is Joe um and 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 then she was like well who's distributing all your books i was like me my wife and her mom <laughs> and she was like you are joking i was like nope not joking so she said like let me like hook you up with some people and that will help you so that's how i got an agent so me and joe have the same agent that is amazing that first of all i'm a jk rowling super fan secondly uh, um i don't know how i'm sorry i'm like still processing that information just that's amazing <laughs> yeah she like descended down from the heavens like a fairy godmother <laughs> <laughs> Let me welcome you into the wonderful world of publishing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much is what happened. It was like some, it was, it was a pretty big shock. Like, I, you know, I can't describe it any other way. I was just, I was just in shock like the whole time. But, um, yeah, she was like, let me set you up with my agent and you can have a chat with them. And if you like each other, maybe you could work together. And I was like, thank you. And then I, I met my agent and they were like, awesome. And, um, you know, they're still awesome. And I've been with them for two years and, um, they helped me sign a multi-book deal, uh, with a great publisher. And I love my publisher too. And they like totally don't control what I write at all. They're like, you know, they, they, their, their policy is, Jess, if you can evidence it, you back it up and you can argue it well, write what you fucking like. 
And I'm like, yes, leave me to it. Nice. Yeah. I love that. So um, they basically republished Why Women Blame for Everything and took over all my distribution and stuff so I didn't have to do it. And then I wrote Sexy But Psycho, which is the one that's um, due out next week. and Which I also love. I've read the first four chapters. Thanks for the sneak peek, by the way. And I'm riveted. I'm hanging off your every word. Uh, I wanted to get, I wanted to finish it before we interviewed you, but um, I'm I'm on chapter five right now. And so, yeah, let's let's talk about that too, because... Wow. Both of your books are just complete paradigm shifts for me. That's what I'm trying to do. So, I, so I'm glad. <laughs> I, I'm still processing the whole your comparison, how what we call mental illness now is basically the same traits that we used to call witches, right? Yep. And how, you know, w- women who were, you know, too mouthy or too knowledgeable or too this or too that or too powerful, they'd call them witches and then burn them alive. And then now they're like, oh, well, you probably have borderline personality disorder. And then they get sectioned. By the way, what is what does se- being sectioned mean? What is that? It's, I guess, it's like a, a term that's used in the UK that means that you're detained under a section of mental health law. So the, the phrase becomes sectioned. So it means to be detained um, in like a psychiatric facility. Jesus, yeah. That's, I don't even know where to begin with that because it's just so wild to me that even just the fact that like a woman being lesbian or bisexual is considered a trait associated with BPD or like, oh, you have an unstable identity and so on. And that that was something happening as recently as 2019. Sorry, bro. Go ahead. I want to talk about our first book and then maybe transition to the second book since we were just talking about the frenzy about her trying to like distribute it. Um, So the first book, you really start to outline how society creates these like multi-layer systems which blame women for their own victimization. So could you give us like an overview of the book and then talk about how that's inter role with your work with Victim Focus? Yeah, sure. So Why Women Are Blamed for Everything was like my space to kind of demonstrate that all victim blaming of women and girls is deliberate, it's multi-layered, and that it is supported, colluded with, and encouraged at every level of society. So that, you know, sometimes you hear people saying things like, oh, victim blaming, it's, it's the media's fault. And like, yeah, it is, but it's not just the media because law enforcement support it and so does education and so does health and so does the family network and so does religion and so does culture and tradition. It's sort of like if you cut one head off, another one grows back. You've got like, you can't just solve victim blaming of women and girls by being like, oh, it's the headlines fault because it, it just isn't. It doesn't work like that. But when I was studying um, it very much is written like that. So the psychological literature is written like, oh, this is the reason for victim blaming and this is how we solve it. But like every time I read more and more and more and more, I just thought, no, it's it's not one reason, it's several because misogyny is like omnipresent. <laughs> like it's everywhere, you, you know. So it seeps into every single system. Equally as like present is the defense of men and defense of male perpetrators and male violence. So when you put those things together, you get this like constant culture of victim blaming that exists in every country in the world. You know, there's victim blaming language in every language spoken in the world. So like the book was my space to sort of lay that out and say, you know, women are blame for everything. And you and the reason for the title was that at one point in my studies, I found so much evidence that you could take anything about that woman and use it to blame her. Like if she's too pretty, uh, that's her fault. If she's not pretty enough, that's her fault. If she's thin, it's her fault. If she's seen as overweight, that's her fault. Like, you know, for being subjected to male violence, like... <laughs> There's just nothing really that protects you from victim blaming at all. And then the impact on your own 
well-being and your understanding of yourself is that as a woman or girl, we are very likely by the time we're like even 11 or 12 years old to blame ourselves when we're subjected to abuse, oppression and violence because, you know, we're in a society that teaches us that that's the case. So the book is like chapter by chapter, like different topics and different ways that victim blaming of women and girls happens with all the evidence that I've collected over the years and like my PhD and things that I learned from working in sexual exploitation and human trafficking, things that I learned from working in the criminal justice system, the interviews that I did with women who were blamed for sexual violence and then the interviews that I did with the professionals that work with women in women's services. I think I'll always be proud of that book. Sometimes I think I would like to rewrite it so that it's less structured like my thesis was, but I'm still like super proud of it. And I know that it's now like required reading on loads of degrees and masters and doctoral programs. I know that students use it in their essays and their exams and psychologists use it, social workers use it, police officers use it. And it's become like a real source of information and facts. So yeah, it's... I guess it's, for me, it meant that I could also present some of my ideas around integrated models of victim blaming, my um, like hierarchy model of like, you know, because I believe that there's a hierarchy of victims, like of women, that you have to hit a certain standard to like even be taken seriously by society or the police or whatever. And the thing is that standard is so fucking high that like nobody hits it. Oh, and it shapeshifts. That, I mean, that was something that we kind of accidentally discovered with FDS as well, is that we just... You, you end up in such a small, tiny little corner and a small, a small range of existence that you're allowed to have and not be victim blamed that you just sort of realize, oh, well, none of this matters. So I can just do whatever I want. It almost like, I feel like FDS just kind of came out on the other side where we realize like, oh, if we're always going to be blamed for violence that happens on dates, if a guy like leaves you after you're married, if you become a single mother, then you might as well take all of that knowledge. Just ask for whatever you want. Yeah. Ask for whatever you want and then start de- making demands commensurate with the things that they say are the problem that's causing you to be victimized, right? Because if men say things like, well, you should have thought about how much the father your child made before you had a kid with them and that's why you're a broke single mother then it's like okay well then you guys got to pay for dates or you have to do this or like we're going to look at your finances before we go on date or something like that and they hate that but i'm like well <laughs> if we're going to be blamed for it then why wouldn't you put some kind of system in place to make sure that you're not going to be a victim since it's going to be our fault when it happens. But they have like the shocked Pikachu face. Or they blame women like if they're abused, they're like, oh, it's because you chose the wrong man. You chose a guy who's like a, you know, a a chat or an alpha or whatever. And then we go, okay, so we're going to establish a rigorous vetting process and we're going to ruthlessly eliminate men who don't meet our standards. We're going to raise our standards way the fuck higher uh, and not put up with any shit and walk away at the first sign of disrespect. And they're like, no, not like that. You know? And they're like, no, 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 not like that. Uh, you know they get so mad that when women realize that the game is rigged against us and that we start playing the game differently and you know that it's 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 like you can't win as a woman right if you raise if you have high standards all your standards are too high and too unrealistic if you don't have high enough standards something bad happens to you oh well it's your fault for having standards that aren't high enough right then it's your own fault Mm -hmm. exactly and so we figured out that double consciousness and just started making strategies that we thought would make sense be maximally beneficial to women yeah right maximally beneficial which has expired just mountains of focused hatred from pretty much everybody male yep i absolutely love that except for our patreon subbies who are male who love us shout out to <laughs> you, you guys we do have like a tiny male following that don't hate us and actually are pretty hardcore fds stands. so i do appreciate those ones Hey queens, do you want a gadget-free activity that not only helps you rest, but trains your brain as well? 
then you need a Unidragon puzzle. Unidragon puzzles are wooden puzzles that are gorgeously painted. The pieces are unique and challenging, and the finished product is so pretty it can double as wall decor. You can also do this puzzle with friends and family. It's a great collaborative activity. In addition to the variety of puzzles, a Unidragon puzzle also comes with other fantastic benefits. As queens, our beauty sleep is extremely important, and one of the best ways to ensure that we get a good night's sleep is to keep our phone and computer screens away from our bed. This is where the puzzle comes in. A Uni Dragon puzzle is a perfect alternative to gadgets as they can help you to relax and unwind so you can get your beauty sleep. All while learning analytical skills that you can use in your daily life. So check out Unidragon puzzles and get 10% off with discount code FDS. That's unidragon.com with discount code FDS for 10% off. Happy puzzling queens. This message was brought to you by this episode sponsor, unidragon.com. Back to the show. You know, FDS, we started out as a tiny little subreddit and, you know, we went viral for, you know, it was quite similar to, to your case, actually, how like, um, you know, we had like one post that, you know, people rage shared on the Manosphere and then we started picking up media attention and then that sort of just like snowballed into this whole thing and now we have a podcast. So, yeah. That's awesome. I absolutely love that. It's so funny. I love that. I love that they get like so angry and then you end up doing better and then they get angrier. <laughs> it's just <Yeah>. great. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel, I'm like just cackling on my throne just on my dark throne we end every episode with the phrase die mad because we kind of mean it yeah I'm just gonna have to die mad yeah I'm mad about it. Yeah, that sounds a lot like how I get because like I've got there's so many like I said there's so many people that have really put a lot of time and effort into trying to discredit me, trying to destroy me, like hit me where it hurts. Like they've really tried everything. Like at this point, I can't think of anything. I can't really think of anything that hasn't been thrown at me from every angle. And like when they come up with something new, I'm like, fuck, that's inventive. <laughs> <laughs> there was anything left i wish there was something new i i'm so tired of reading the same femcel and cat lady comments over and over and over again i'm like uh guys please come up with something original some of mine have got really really inventive like i saw one the other day that said that um so like it's moved on now like all of that stuff is pretty like i do get that stuff but um some of the stuff's really inventive like the other day i saw one saying that um I lie about like everything that happened to me in childhood and like growing up in poverty and having nothing and that my my dad is actually like a powerful lord <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah like uh, DNA tests sir <laughs> I was I know yeah I was like what and I said to my wife I said to my wife earlier I was like if my dad was a powerful lord he'd be dead because he's an alcoholic and he would have drank himself to death by now so there was there was that one and then I saw one the other day saying that I was um what's called a scientologist what i know i don't even like i don't i had to like i don't know anything about it my favorite ones are the ones that are like factually incorrect though like i've seen some tweets that are like oh dr jess taylor is just like a bitter childless uh, femme cell you know she's just mad because she's single I'm like you do realize she's like married with children right and has like a whole adorable family of pets and stuff and her <laughs> life seems pretty great like a, a lot of these guys when they say oh you're just a bitter femme cell those guys are almost always bitter incels themselves and they're just projecting their own shit yeah they don't even know what we look like but they 
attack our looks, right? I don't know. They're just so misogynistic and they think that a woman's value is only in her looks. And so they'll just attack that even if they have no idea what she looks like. It's such bullshit. Yeah, that's so true. And also like, I mean, obviously people know what I look like, but I can't, I don't get bored of like the whole, I I don't know, I'll put something up, like a really considered argument about, I don't know, some issue in society. And then a man will be like, yeah, well, um, no one wants to fuck you. I'll be like, <laughs> tell that to my wife. <laughs> but like, I'm just like thinking, is that what you think hurts? Like, it, so do you think that my whole life revolves around wanting men on the internet to read my tweet about, I don't know, um, a theory of victim blaming and then think, God, I hope this makes men want to shag me. Like, what earth do they think I'm doing? (laughs) Men use that because that's how they judge themselves by. So they think it hurts women because it hurts them. Yeah, that's important to them. So the fact that they can't get laid, they think, oh, well, I feel like a fucking loser because no woman wants to touch me. So they go around accusing women of that. So they assume you value that and that's your problem too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, I I don't think that they understand that I would be a lot more hurt if they contacted me and was like, I've read your book and on page 192, there's a typo. Yeah. <laughs> I would be fucking distraught. Yeah, there's actually some things that if our critics attack me for that I know that would actually destroy me, but so far I've never heard a single one of them actually say, I'm going to keep that to myself, but like, there are certain things that people could criticize me for that would destroy me, but they, I've yet to hear them, and so (laughs) that's why I kind of chuckled to myself, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to ask you, because you you know what's weird, so there's a certain segment on Twitter that um, of Radfem Twitter that says that FDS engages in victim blaming because we teach women about like spotting red flags. They think the entire premise of like vetting men is inherently victim blaming. And so like, of course, we would never like if a, if a woman was abused, we'd never be like, oh, she should have vetted him better. We would never say something like that. It's more of like a proactive, like preventative kind of. Um, but I wanted to know what are your thoughts? Like, I want to know from the expert herself, like, is it victim blaming to learn about how to spot red flags? Okay. So my view on that is similar to the way that you've described it. So I have some caveats. So the first is if this is a conversation between two equal women, just talking about the signs in men that make them feel uncomfortable and how to like respond to them or spot them or whatever, then I don't feel that that's victim blaming. But if that was a person in power if that was um law enforcement or if that was you know a teacher or a social worker being like you need to spot these red flags why don't you keep spotting them you know you're putting yourself at risk by not spotting them and escaping these perps then yeah i have a fucking problem with it so like and then the other thing about that is what you just said is that i think it it goes into victim blaming at the moment when someone goes well why didn't you notice the red flags like that for me is a problem. Like, so I talk about it myself. Like I, I, I put a tweet up the other day being like, um, you know, if you, if, a, oh, I know what it was. I said, like, if you are with a man who tells you that all of his exes are psycho and all of his exes are liars and jealous and don't listen to anything my exes say because they're all fucking jealous and, and, you know, they, they just want to split us up. I was like red fucking flag. Like that is a big problem, you know. Um, so I'm not saying that, uh, you know. And then if you're with a dude like that, uh, it's your own fault because that's a, that's a huge leap. I'm I'm just pointing out the red flag in him. If, however, I was putting a message up being like, you know, and if you don't spot this and you choose to stay with him, then you're the problem. Then yeah, I think that's victim blaming. So I I wanted to follow up with that because sometimes we do call women pick me's for perpetuating 
what we think are systems of patriarchy and more or less knowingly doing it. When do you think someone crosses over from victim to victimizer, even if they're female? Because there are women who, you know, they're, <laughs> I want to call them handmaidens, but I remember there was this whole plate shaming controversy on Twitter about women being like, if you don't fix your man a plate during Thanksgiving or Christmas, then he has a right to divorce you. Another woman will. Exactly. Like there's, there's stuff like that where you're like, I don't want to blame them for the messages that they received as a kid that make them believe this kind of stuff. But they also voluntarily got on Twitter and decided to shame other women for not doing something what we'd call pick me, right? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So how do you reconcile those two ideas? See, I, I, we, we maybe we differ on this slightly, but I genuinely see those as like even bigger victims of the patriarchy than women that can spot it. I just think that when you're that deep into it and you are so deep into it and you're so sure that, that I don't know, that you like literally being a servant to man makes you righteous in some way to the point where you push it on other women and then try and shame them all that does to me is shout like how how like controlled and groomed you are how indoctrinated they are yeah like it that worries me like women like that scare me but like they scare me because you just know they're being treated like shit every day but they've been groomed to enjoy it they've been groomed to like think that's normal Whenever I see comments, like, because I see that all the time on my social media, and I know that all, like, some of my followers will comment back, be like, oh, you fucking handmaiden, or you pick me, or whatever. And I always think, I know that that comment is inflammatory, and I know that that comment is shaming other women, but I think that's a real woman in a real relationship with a real man who has pushed her down so much that she's now on Facebook, like, you know, taking chunks out of some other woman for, like, the things that you just said, like, not cooking well enough or, you know, something really domesticated. There's that, and then there's a real level of internalised misogyny, you know, to the point where I don't think it's possible to argue that women are you know constantly impacted by levels of misogyny in society so i think it's normal that women are misogynistic towards other women and i think that's slightly different because i think that women can choose to victimize other women i think women you know i i had i've, I've said this before i made a video about it recently that i was going to put out because it makes some radical feminists really uncomfortable but i am sick to death of defending violent and abusive women by saying things like oh she was vulnerable a man made her do it um you know it's not her fault she's she was a victim too and all that shit like at the end of the day i think it's misogynistic to not accept that women do have the capability and the power to be dangerous offenders violent offenders right right no that's where i'm at yeah so i'm glad that someone else agrees right because the thing is about this is that i think we should be more interested in the fact that women have the power the capability the intelligence the strength and the violence in them, right, to go out and fucking kill people, sexually assault people, kill kids, whatever it is that men are out there doing all the fucking time, right? But they don't do it. The interest should be in why they don't do it because they've got the fucking power to do it. They've got the capability to do it. So there's a choice being made there or or they're socially groomed and controlled not to utilise those parts of themselves. So I have no interest in trying to minimise, like, for example, when a woman goes out and murders two people or when a woman has killed her own kids or a woman shoots her husband or whatever it is, I have no interest in defending that woman. Like, I, I, I'm not going to sit there and be like, oh, you know, it's not her fault. Um, She was abused as a child. We don't accept that shit for men. Don't accept it for women. Like, let women, you know, be accountable. Women can be shitty people too, okay? Okay, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
It's tough because, um, you know, I think part of the reason why we've been controversial even with feminist groups too is because we also acknowledge like the wound that comes with the fact if your mother is violent or is like a massive pick me and puts like her husband or her boyfriend above you, like that causes personal wounds. And we sort of let women validate the fact that like, yes, you do have a right to be angry for not being protected by a mother figure who should have protected you. Right. But it can come across, I think, as well as victim as victim blaming, because sometimes they're like, well, maybe she couldn't have left. But then there's other times we're like, no, she could have. And she chose not to. She chose her boyfriend. She chose her husband over her children, et cetera. So it's a really complicated issue. Like just to give you an example, like uh, just to give you an example, like I have an aunt who her second husband was molesting my cousin, uh, her a child from her first marriage. And when my cousin made an accusation against him, my aunt sided with her husband. And, you know, in the family, it's like, oh, well, she couldn't have left. Uh, you know, she, she was financially reliant on him. You know, she had to do what she, she did what she thought to protect her family and stuff. No, no, no. She sided with her child molester husband and CPS came in, took all the kids, not just my cousin, but all the other kids as well, because they said like, well, as long as there's a child molester here, the kids can't live here, right? So all the kids go to foster care. And then my cousin ends up recanting because foster care was so difficult for all of them. And she felt like she was responsible and feeling like, and all, all of my cousins, by the way, who went into foster care were abused or uh, some of them even sexually abused. And so she ended up recanting. And now she has a reputation for like, oh, she makes false accusations, yada, yada, yada. When the whole reason why she recanted, even though it did actually happen, the whole reason why she recanted was to protect her own siblings. Right. And so this, like my aunt, for example, is someone who's very controversial in our family. Like some people, I really get angry with people who feel a lot of sympathy for her. Like, oh, she was abused too. And so on. It's like, no, she made a conscious choice to side with her husband over her own children and she was like just a diehard like you know stood by him in court like saying like that her own child was lying about being molested and stuff this is an example of a woman who's like to me like so willing to throw yeah she might be indoctrinated yeah she might have been socialized a certain way but like there are a lot of women who are abused who don't make those kinds of choices right and i think it's insulting to say that oh women you know, terrorize other women because they were abused. Just the same way I think it's unfair to say that men terrorize women because they were molested as kids or whatever. Those decisions are like a conscious choice, right? And so women like that, and, you know, with FDS, a lot of women who follow FDS, I've noticed, do have a difficult relationship with their mothers. I have a difficult relationship with my mother for a lot of these same reasons. And so um, we've been accused of, like, I guess, victim blaming because we hold these kinds of women responsible for their choices. And like Lilith just illustrated, it's multiple layers of betrayal, right? There's the victim blaming going on from the family, and then there's the victimization going on in the foster care system, or the victimization and the betrayal you feel of having your mother figure not defend you. So it's been a really, really tough process for us to even like navigate this very sensitive thing, because there are times where, yes, there's some women that like, they just truly don't know any better. And then... I think, and I think pop media has always painted these women as victims or like totally victims, but those of us who've also experienced it or have seen them make choices, you know, against the interest of people around them that actually had uh, cascading negative effects, if not traumatic, extremely traumatic effects. So it's like, how do we be honest to our experience, um, hold women accountable for choices that, um, especially when it comes to their children, can lead to intense amount of trauma and at the same time, push back at a system that created it, right? Like the patriarchy. So it's, it, I mean, it's sticky to navigate this discussion. And I don't even know that we get it right all the time. <laughs> I think that um, 
it's complex and the reason that it feels really complex is often because women have been um, typecast as like one dimensional so when they start contradicting shit like in who they are as a person everybody's like what the fuck's going on <laughs> you can be more than one thing yeah <laughs> you can be a complex multifaceted human being what yeah exactly so like so even the the theories around it are one dimensional and the discussions are one dimensional and the literature is one dimensional and then so when you try to reconcile all those complex nuances and identities uh, even like you know as you're having these conversations often and and i'm having these conversations often you still end up pausing and being like um because <laughs> we because we always say too because we have a lot of people that have been truly truly victimized by some truly awful circumstances i feel like just like the willingness to seek out help is just far and above far and above what we see some, from some other women who we feel like they're sort of content to maintain the status quo as long as they're relatively comfortable compared to other women yeah, as long as they're relatively comfortable so for us it's like we've seen women go through horrible circumstances and then take it upon themselves to either break the cycle not repeat the cycle by any means necessary or uh, at least understand that you can be a both a victim and responsible, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily black and white. You can be a victim and a person who perpetrates abuse or at least like uh, exacerbates and upholds a system of abuse. So we've sort of reconciled it with the idea that you can do both and that, you know, your responsibility is to do your best and your responsibility is to seek out strategies to better things. And that if you, if you don't do that, then that's, you're sort of tacitly accepting the way things are. I think it depends. Uh, There's some of this, I don't know, there's some of, some of what you say, it it would depend on the on the individual circumstance because the way that you've just described that, I can think of what I can think of cases where women have been definitely seen like that, and then when you scratch the surface, they're actually absolutely terrified for their lives. So they'll stay there forever because they know that if they leave, he will never leave them. Like he will he will destroy them, and he will take great pleasure in it for the next two months or twenty years. But like I also, as I, as I said, and I stand by it, that I know that there are women and I've met women like it and I'm still like some of the things that even have happened to me in my life have been women who have who have done that and made choices to do so and you could technically argue that they're all victims of oppression and patriarchy and then therefore you could then sort of fall down a rabbit hole of saying well then they're not responsible for anything they say or do or you know because they're victims first and foremost but I just it's all I think it's all context driven. I think it's all based on individual examples and individual, I guess, details of each situation. But I think in the majority of cases, if you're, if we were talking about women who can't or don't leave abuse, I mean, I've worked with thousands of women in the last 12 years. And in the, in the most, you know, in the vast majority of cases, it doesn't matter what resources you think that woman has, whether that's psychological resources, financial resources or whatever, even if they look comfortable and privileged, they are, either so downtrodden by the abuse that they have absolutely no strength to do it like it's too much so they stay there 
or sometimes it's that they know that that perpetrator is going to fucking kill them or is going to make their life hell or knows stuff about them that no one else knows and will go and tell their family or tell their workplace or will destroy their lives or, or their reputation or their business or whatever. So they stay. And then in other cases, they stay out of guilt. In some cases, they stay out of shame or cultural norms. Or in some cases, they stay for religious reasons. Like they believe that if they leave their marriage or their relationship, they'll live in sin. There's just so many ways you can keep a woman in those situations to the point where they actually become indoctrinated and they accept these things to be real uh, about themselves and about other women. The other thing that happens, I think, is that there's a level of psychological safety you can afford to yourself by um, convincing yourself that you are actually not being abused and you're fine and that it's other women with the problem and um, you don't need to get out and that, you know, the women around you are, are jealous or they're pro- they're causing problems for you or, or they're lying about your spouse or whatever it is because it's a defense mechanism for you psychologically to convince yourself that it's everybody else with the problem and that your relationship is absolutely fine and that, you know, you're not really being abused. You're in total control because, I mean, I've worked with teenage girls that were being trafficked and bought and sold and raped and were being threatened with their lives all the time and you sit them down and say, you know, um, we need to help you get out. We need, we're going to help you escape. And they're like, Ex- escape what? Like, I'm in total control here. And you're sort of like, how are you in control? And they're like, because, you know, I can do whatever I want and he'll pay me. And we're like, no, you're being trafficked. Like, And they're like, no, I'm in control because if I go and give him a blowjob now, he'll give me, you know, 50 quid. And we're like, well, that's because he's a perpetrator and he's a grown ass man and he knows he can exploit and control you. And they're like, no, I'm exploiting and controlling him. And like, that's, that purely is psychological defense mechanism, right? Yeah. I've seen, um, if you've ever seen the YouTube channel, Soft White Underbelly, uh, occasionally they interview pimps and part of what the pimps do is convince these girls that they're in control. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually, it's actually so insidious the way that they spin a narrative to make the prostitution seem like it's, uh, uh, like a, a power position. Yeah. All while they're being exploited by both the Johns and the pimp himself. Yeah. So that, that in itself is like multi layered, uh, narratives that are full of, uh, of bullshit that they've respun into female empowerment. So it's um it's interesting to see, and this is a side note, but it's interesting to see that um on sex work Twitter they say the same thing. <laughs> like Yeah, on sex work Twitter and liberal feminist media that just sort of wholeheartedly accepts this as reality. And I'm like, you don't even understand the various levels of power that you don't have. <laughs> um because if you understood it, you wouldn't call this power, right? Because you're I mean, you're at best a worker and like it <laughs> the thing about being uh any type of wage worker is that you're at you're at the the mercy of market demands and something like sex trafficking sex work etc market demands are often depraved and violent i i don't know i i just have very little patience for lying and so when i see women go online and and talk about like oh i'm actually in the power position or you know sex workers are in the power position they're actually exploiting the men you know even if they're saying it as a psychological defense mechanism i see that and i'm just i just get so pissed off by dishonesty but they don't think that they don't think they're being dishonest because they they genuinely believe that shit like that that's not they're not they're not um attempting to convince anybody or anything like that they they genuinely genuinely believe that it's the way that they are able to function especially when you've been in prostitution 
prostitution. You know, that is a, like when I was in prostitution, that is exactly what I thought was like, you know, that it was me with all the power and that it was brilliant and that I could do whatever I wanted and that men were just like, they're just like, that men are just stupid and you just make them do what you want, like for money basically. But that's, that was very short lived for me, like literally, like incredibly short lived because I realized how much danger I was actually in and that that could turn on me at any moment and I would be fucked like I would be dead and once that had got in my head I couldn't stop thinking about it and then I didn't ever do it again and it was like I was very lucky because my life path could have been very different if I didn't get out really early which is what I did it's enough for me even the memories of it is enough for me to know that in every situation I was in I had absolutely no power whatsoever but I definitely convinced myself that I did like absolutely I did I thought I did I would if you would have asked me when I was 18 I would have told you that I'm in total power and this is brilliant and who the fuck are you to tell me what to do yeah that's tough another example of like both perpetrator and um victim is this is a conversation that happens a lot on the subreddit where um women from certain cultures where it's normal to when you get married uh to join for the wife to join the husband's family and so we read a lot of horror stories on the subreddit about women talking about how their mother-in-laws bully them and treat them like scullery maids and treat them like shit and emotionally terrorize them even sometimes physically like abusing them and so on yeah yeah. and it's really really difficult because these mother these mother-in-laws they think that's normal and they think that that's well that's what i've i went through when she got married and so on right and she thinks that that's just like the circle of life you know you you get married you know, you get treated like shit by your mother-in-law. If you have a son, great, you're golden. And then you're, you get a daughter-in-law that you then get to abuse, right? And so it's that, it's that sort of thing where, again, it's, I have very little patience for, I'm just an impatient person in general. That's just kind of how I be. But um, I don't know. I, I read these kinds of stories and I just get so angry at the mothers-in-laws. It's like, how, you know, because I've been abused and I've been treated like shit by women as well. And I I learned that like, oh, being abused feels shitty and like, I don't want to make other people feel shitty. Yeah, yeah. Put it on someone else, right? You know, so I wouldn't want to make someone else feel as badly as I was treated, right? And if I've, you know, been through suffering, right? So I just can't wrap my mind around uh, you know, going through abuse and then wa- actually wanting to do that to other people. I just, I, I don't understand it. No, I know. But like, if you're not that kind of person, you you just won't understand it. Like I, I don't either. And I could never imagine doing what, like, if I think about all the things I've been through and all the things that I've felt, you'll notice, for example, that, um, and, and I've had to have these conversations with like my wife and like with my family members and stuff. I'm so anti-aggression and anti-violence. I don't even have shouting in my house. Like I can't, I can't even sh- like, like there's just, and it doesn't matter as well. Like people think that I'm quite uh, confrontational and quite feisty it, and I'm not I'm, I'm actually really slow to temper I have a very very laid-back temperament and partially that's because I take a, I take a breath and I have a think and I, and I don't want to inflict any kind of aggression or violence that I've lived through on another human being I don't want to do it so I, so I choose not to it's a conscious decision and that that comes back to what you're saying about like the you know for example with the, this mother-in-law right yes she's been subjected to it yes she might think it's normal but there is still a conscious decision there to act it out over again in a cycle 
cycle. There is, I'm sorry, there is. Like, because there are so many women who have been subjected to these types of violence and abuse that then couldn't think of anything worse than actually inflicting it on somebody else. And, and they never do it because it would trigger them so bad. It would, it would upset them. It would scare them. It would, it would traumatize them to inflict it on somebody else. So as far as I'm concerned, in cases like that, it's not as simple as, um, you know, like normalization and desensitization to it. It's actually that it's a way of lashing out. I'm sure it's like a way of taking it out on another woman. So you're no longer at the bottom of the pile. There's, there's another woman under you that you can inflict it on. Do you know what I mean? And because of patriarchy and misogyny. It's seen as an upgrade. Like you go from being abused to abuser. That's seen as like you're moving up in life. Yeah, for sure. And like we, I see that even in professional practice, you know, you get women in that become in, in positions of power in social care, police forces and, um, you know, psychology, therapy, and you give them a bit of power and like, and, you know, there's at the end of the day, there's different kinds of people. If you give some kinds of people power, they'll fucking harm people with it. And, and other people are very, very careful with levels of power. And the same goes for women, which is what we were saying earlier is that it would be misogynistic to suggest that women are always safe with power. They're not. Why would they be unless you believe the gender role stereotype, which is that all women are safe, all women are nurturing, all women are selfless and caring and lovely, which is bollocks. But, you know, this, so the same thing will happen is that if a woman's been abused and then you give her some power, there's going to be some women that would never, ever use that negatively. And then there's going to be some that will fucking take it out on everybody that, that you give them some power. They're going to harm people with it. Yeah. I heard this quote. I can't remember who said it, but it was a really good quote. Um, power reveals Power doesn't corrupt. Power reveals. It reveals what you would have done all along if you had that power. I really like that. I'll try to find who, who said that. But um, yeah, I, I, I've always had a problem with this idea that like power corrupts and that like the more power you get, the more inherently evil you're going to, or that it's like, you know, you're destined to become evil. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a... I'm going to take the Spider-Man <laughs> quote, which is, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, yeah, not all people with power do evil things. Like, some people do choose to use their power in, like, a more beneficial way. Like you, for example. <laughs> I'm really glad that as you've, you know, moved up and so on, that you've remained firm in your dedication to being victim-focused like that. I love... I love hearing about your background because there's so many women that, uh, you know, come to us and are on our Patreon and converse with us. You know, they're starting from very little or starting from nothing. And they have this idea that well, because I come from humble beginnings or because of things that happened to me. Because they're working class or because they're... Because they're working class. Right, exactly. And so the, um, there's so many women that have let you know, society shame them from going out and trying things because they feel that they are not deserving. So having anybody on our platform who can show you know, a journey from being powerless to powerful is just inspiring beyond words. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still getting used to it. <laughs> if I ever have a daughter, I'm going to tell your story, like, a, instead of talking about, like, Brothers Grimm or, you know, telling her fairy tales, I'm going to be like, and then there was a girl named Jess Taylor who, <laughs> she was born in a council estate, and then she, <laughs> and then she vanquished her enemies. Because <laughs> it is sort of like, you know, this really amazing story like just it is an inspirational story that i would want my daughter if i have a daughter to um to learn from that that's amazing <laughs> so let's talk about your next book your next book sexy but psycho 
how the patriarchy uses women's trauma against them. This might actually be the most important thing that I'll ever write. So what I need you to do now is go and pre-order this book. Um, and that's my plea to you, go and pre-order it because I need it to get into the bestsellers list in a couple of weeks time. So we only have until the 10th of March to pre-order it. And if it gets into the bestsellers list, there are a lot of people that can't ignore this book and then I can make even more noise about it. So if you could please go and pre-order it, that would be amazing. I'm trying to get about 800 more pre-orders by the 10th of March and that will guarantee it being in the bestsellers list and then I can make loads of noise about it. So that would be amazing if you could go and do that. Yeah, ladies, I highly encourage you listeners. We'll put the pre-order link in the show notes below. Please definitely pre-order this. It's important to support other women's work, especially work that's as important and disruptive to patriarchy as this. Please check out patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy because we will have part two of this interview up on Friday and we will discuss in more detail Jess's book, Sexy But Psycho, really, really do a deep dive into how the medical industry is pathologizing women's behavior and the disruptive work she's doing to uh, change all that. I've watched women's mental health records and their and their childhood traumas be used against them in the same trial where a man has used it to get off on the charge of attacking that woman. And you're like, how? How can that possibly be? Because that judge has just sat there and watched somebody go, oh, you know, she's got childhood trauma and she's mentally ill and that's why we, could, we shouldn't listen to her because she's a fucking liar. And then the man has stood up and been like, I didn't do it and I've got childhood trauma and my mental health is really bad. And the, and the judge has gone, oh, that's terrible. No, apparently that means he's telling the truth. So please check that out. You can also follow us on Twitter at femdatstrat and on our Instagram page at underscore the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you scrotes out there, you're full of the devil. Die mad. Hey, ladies, are you looking for a podcast that brazenly advances women's political interests? Check out Female Political Strategy. Female Political Strategy is a politics-focused spinoff brought to you by the ruthless minds behind the female dating strategy. I'm Lilith, a socialist. Elle, a conservative. And I'm Ro, and I'm politically non-binary. Join us as we shatter male-crafted narratives on all sides of the political spectrum and spearhead our agenda for a female-focused future. Tune in to Female Political Strategy wherever podcasts are distributed. You can also find us on Twitter, at Female Political. Until next time, Team Female. <laughs>